So just a few remarks here. Uh, I'll just walk through the verses with you. I don't know if you've ever done a study on the book of Ruth before. I can certainly um, encourage you to do one if you ever have the opportunity. It's Of all the series I've preached in my years as a preacher, it's the only one in which afterwards someone came and said, you have to turn that into a book. Well, that hasn't happened, but I, I appreciate the compliment and the uh, heart of the person that made the request. But it begins, as you see here, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So immediately we are set in the context of the setting of the book previously, the book of Judges. And so you need to then get an idea of what's going on in this book, what's happening there. And if you've ever studied Judges, you'll be aware that it records the cyclical apostasy and repentance of Israel. They're continually going away. It's summarized in chapter 2, I think it's around verse 10, that there's a generation that rises up that knows not the Lord. They depart from God. God sends them some instrument from the nations surrounding them to be uh, a means of uh, provoking them to repentance. They repent, they cry out to God. God sends a judge, that judge delivers them. There's peace for a period of time before the cycle continues all over again. And it's in the middle of that cyclical experience of apostasy and then eventual repentance through the uh, harsh providences of the Lord that they endure, that the book of Ruth is found. This little book that often people get all caught up in terms of the, 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 the love and the, the theme of, of loss to redemption and everything else that is very true, begins in a time that is turbulent. And the setting appears to bring us to a point in which Israel is apostatizing. They're, they're turning away from God. And this is why we read then that when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And that immediately raises an alarm in our minds. Why is there a famine in the land? Well, God had said, he had told them, Deuteronomy chapter 26, he would send famine when they would turn away from God. And so famines weren't haphazard. They weren't random events in the experience of Israel. Every single time there was a famine, especially one that would persist, they ought to have been recognizing that God's hand is in this. And the whole intention of the famine is to lead us to repentance. That's the point. So you have to keep that in mind. You have to have that perspective in your mind that here is another scene of calamity. These people are faced with the calamity of famine. We don't know what famine's like. We have no idea of the, the fear that people would even have year after year wondering whether the crops would grow and whether there would be provision for the family and whether there would be a harvest for future seasons. But we're told then this is, this is the setting, a famine. So I, you need to step back and see there's a famine. Why is there a famine? Because there's sin in the land. And this sin is provoking God. And God is getting the attention of his covenant people. And so it then narrows in. It gets specific. The book of Judges largely is general. It's this overview of about 400 years of the rise and fall of the spiritual experience of Israel. And now we, at some point in this whole history, Ruth, this book, narrows in on this these, these specific individuals gets very particular about their experience. And so it opens up a window. What's going on 
in just the average Israelite's life. What's going on amidst these turbulent days? And so in the middle of verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Here is a man who responds pragmatically to the problem that he's faced with. We're in famine. Now God's intention with the famine is to do what? I've already said it. What's the purpose? To bring repentance. What's Elimelech's response? Instead of to repent, he decides to run. To avoid, to escape, to circumvent the circumstances that God had brought specifically to bring them to repentance. And he decides to analyze it and decide, let's, let's move. Now he moves to Moab, the place where there had been a whole history going back as far as Lot and his daughters. And they had sought to safe passage through that land while they were wandering in the wilderness. And the king of Moab had forbidden it. There had been uh, an interaction with the Israelites and the daughters of Moab and God's judgment came and 20-something thousand of them ended up dead because they provoked the Lord in that matter as well. They're specifically named that the Moabite has no place in the public worship of God. And while they're not specifically named in, I think it's Deuteronomy 7, where there's a list of nations that they are not allowed to marry, the Moab isn't mentioned there, but it is mentioned then in Ezra chapter 9, when Ezra's lamenting over the fact that there's this mixing of, of, of the Lord's people with other nations, and the Moabites are, are included there. So that this, they, they do provoke the Lord, and they were to be separated from this people. They had false worship. They would influence the Lord's people for ill. And so he should have been thinking to himself, I have no business going here. This isn't an option. It is not an option. But you can see his predicament. It's a famine. There's no food. And compounding the problem is, with the name of his sons, Malon and Kilian, there's this indication that they are of a sickly constitution both of them, both of their names indicating sickly or frail and so here's a man with two boys that are frail, weak and he is looking, he's analysing and he amidst the calamity he thinks here's the option let's go somewhere else let's try to, to live for a while in Moab to stay there until the famine passes his motive then is to stay alive and to keep his sons alive. And yet, as we've read, he fails. He utterly fails in the objective that he had. He's called Elimelech. It's an interesting name. If I'm remembering correctly, my God is the king, is the name is that he is given. Which again, we're going to step straight into 1 Samuel which is going to tell us that there's been, and I would say to you, it wasn't just an individual event for Samuel 8, whenever God has to tell Samuel that they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from reigning over them. That that wasn't just a one-generation event. This, this had been a kind of crescendo 
experience that this constant desire, we want a king like the rest of the nations. And Elimelech's parents have said, no, our God is king. And names him that as a public testimony, God is king. And sadly then you come to 1 Samuel 8 and there's this enough of a general desire among the people to no, no, it's not enough that God is our king. We need our own king. And God says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from reigning over them. So he came from good stock. He came from godly parents. But here's a man now that has, is failing to respond in faith. And I say to you, I say to you, especially to the men folk, there will be times of calamity. Times of struggle, times when your back is against the wall. It may be materially, it may be something else entirely. There are a thousand and one ways that God can bring calamity into our lives. But how do we respond? How do we respond? Elimelech makes a decision. His wife has to go with him. His sons must go with him. They are pulled into this decision. And so it's not just him, it's everyone involved. And this is where we have to be so careful about the steps that we take. When we are faced with calamity, we must respond in faith, not in frustration. And to respond in faith for Elimelech would be, what does God's word say? This is to bring us to repentance, not to just run away and avoid it. These people we are to have nothing to do with, we can't go there, it's not an option. And of course, later we find out that Boaz has stayed there. He has flourished financially. He has come out of the famine with abundance. God has favored him, no doubt because he stayed there, turned his face toward heaven and cried out to God to be merciful. And God stepped in. But that was not the case for Elimelech. It's a striking warning. These opening verses are a striking warning of... Failure in leadership. Making decisions that have ramifications. But you try to justify it with all these practical arguments, but ultimately you are, you're deviating from the word. And you will be there. That's, what, that's, that's the takeaway. Musing on this all day, thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm coming to speak to these families. And you never know when your back's going to be against the wall and everything, everything, and even, even people's advice will be, will be whispering in your ear with all this pragmatic rationalization of the decisions that you are to make in such a case. And yet there's no, no turning to the Lord. No opening of His Word. So I see, and I know, sometimes when we know the end of the story, we fail to see what's going on in the specifics. When I did preach through this, and I'm pressing the same issue I'm putting tonight, I, I was confronted at the door. But, but, but look how the Lord used it all. <laughs> it doesn't take away from the error of Elimelech's life. No more so than it takes away from Pilate's guilt and putting the Son of God on the cross, even though by that means... Christ redeems the world unto himself. He is guilty. He acts in unbelief. And it leads to the catastrophe that comes upon his family. The, the line of verse 3 is so sad. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And here she is in Moab. 
at the one point where she needs all her friends in Bethlehem to be near her. When she needs a traditional Israelite funeral service, there's no one. She's in Moab. Nothing's familiar. No friends, no family, except her two boys, which, who knows, maybe in their teens, we, we have no idea. She's left. She was left. The most vulnerable of society. The widow. Left. Orphans. Left. And they took them wives of the woman of Moab. Well, here's the danger. Here's the danger. What's interesting about the verb took is that it is, has the idea of lift. You read, you read this in your English translation all the time that Abraham took Sarah or Rebecca, you know, Isaac took Rebecca or whatever. And over and over again you'll find that verb is used. But it's a different word here. It's a different word. And it's the idea that they lifted them. And there's another passage where the same verb is used in relation to taking woman and it is negative. The use is a negative context. And I understand that to be a, a very careful revelation that what Malon and Killian do here is they, they lift something that they ought not. Maybe Naomi's against it. She's opposed to it. They're going against her will. God's opposed to it for sure, but they're going ahead. And yet God is so patient. Ten years. Ten years. God waits, but there's no, there's no spiritual change. There's no repentance. Maybe they're getting worse. Maybe they're integrating more into Moab. Ah, yes, you see, they tried, they tried to avoid this famine that was going on. But here they are. They left Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of spiritual bread, where even if a famine is, there's still spiritual bread there, but they sacrificed the spiritual bread for physical bread, and now they're going astray entirely. They're not being sustained by the bread of God. And so the two sons end up dying as well, both of them. And so Naomi is left of her two sons and her husband. The scene, as I say, is, is tragic. I could go on. I don't want to eat into our time of prayer. But I, I want you to step away from all the wonderful things that then follow in the book of Ruth and how the Lord's going to use all of this and how Ruth is going to be this Moabitish woman who converts and is in the line that leads to the Messiah. All of that's wonderful and has its place, but it begins with the tragic reality. In fact, the, the wonder of the whole message is that it does begin so dark, but it is as dark, as dark as a warning. And every father here makes decisions all of the time. If you don't know the mind of God, you're, you're going to Make shipwreck. It may take ten years. Ten years. 
my god, God will eventually deal with those who rebel against him. Yes. Repentance. I think this is where we need to get. Naomi, she ends up being the one who's penitent. Everything about the verbiage of verse 6 shows her repentance. She arose. Uh, the repentance begins there. Arising from where you are, like the prodigal. You have to get up from where you were. There, feeding among with the pigs. You have to get up. You have to return. Verse 6. And then, think of verse 7. Also notes, you have to go forth. Out of the place where she was. That's repentance. And that's, that's the need for some of us in our homes, isn't it? Ongoing repentance. Seeking the Lord's mercy. Our decisions don't bring judgment upon our families. Any questions?